I grew up in a Reformed church. And, you know, a lot of things that I grew up accepting as a Christian were part of a specific niche minority doctrine called Calvinism. But I was just, they, they weren't taught to me as an option on the views that exist out there. They were just taught as the view. And as I grew up, certain family members came to me and started to explain to me the different options on the table. And I immediately had this wake-up call where I was like, wow, this Calvinism thing just really doesn't, I don't know why, it just doesn't work. I don't know why people believe it. Now, there are a thousand critiques of Calvinism out there. You know, personally, I tend to lean towards the more philosophical critiques by people like Jerry Walls. Um, There are certainly biblical critiques. I just find those to generally be less powerful because I will admit the Bible seems to affirm Calvinism. It also seems to affirm affirm libertarian free will. So a a biblical critique, it seems to me there's not really a, a strong conclusion a Christian can draw from just the Bible. So I think when Jerry Walls comes in with philosophy, it's a strong case. But here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about two objections to Calvinism that I think people generally don't think about very much. And they're two big deals for me. The first one is that to be a Calvinist evangelist, you kind of have to be misleading. Now, here's what I mean. What evangelism can you do if you don't say that God is good? You know, he's all loving. He's good. He's a good God, and he, and he loves you. So just focus on that. Say God is good. When you tell someone, hey, you should trust this guy because he's good, what you're implicitly saying is, hey, this thing, this thing that you understand about good, how you understand good to be, well, that applies to this person, and so you should like them. But here's the issue. Calvinism, the good of Calvinism, is not the good of the average Joe Schmo. And, and this, this isn't something... Uh, Calvinists will affirm this. There's a whole part of Reformed doctrine which says our intuitions about what good and bad are are wrong. The reason that God can create people and predestine them to eternal torment and still be good is because our intuitions about good and bad are, you know, ruined by the fact that we're sinful and the fall and all that kind of stuff. And listen, that idea, hey, I'm fine with it. But the issue is that they then go to non-Christians and they say, God is good. You should follow him. But when you're doing this, you're using a different definition of good in a way that's misleading. It's misleading to tell non-Christians, for a Calvinist to tell non-Christians that God is good. Because when a non-Christian thinks of the word good, they think of things like not a murderer, not, you know, a, a thief, not someone who tortures someone. You're, you're not a, a serial killer. And I think it would also include things like not condemning, not putting people in hellfire for a day, a month, a year, all of eternity. That seems like it would fit the average Joe secular definition 
of good, not doing those things. So when a Calvinist comes and says, God is good, non-believer, you should love him. They're being dishonest. They're being dishonest. What they should say is something besides the word good. They should say, God is all-powerful. Because the Calvinist understanding of powerful and the secular understanding of powerful match. So maybe they say he's all-powerful and, you know, I, I don't know what else they could say, frankly. But it's just dishonest to use good. Here, here's an illustration of that. Imagine that there's a car dealership. <laughs> I keep talking about car dealerships in this, this podcast. There's a car dealership. And they have this discussion, and there's, there's six of them, and they, they go into a room together, and then the head car dealer goes, listen, everyone, I've been thinking. I've been reading philosophy of, of language, and I've been meditating on it. I want to meditate today on the word free. What does the word free mean? Well, you might think it means you don't pay money for it. But what about things that you pay for in other ways? For example, if I say, hey, you have to go to get this, you have to do all the plumbing in my house. That's not free. So it can't just be you don't pay money about it, right? What does it really mean to be free? Well, when you go to Costco and get a sample, is that free? Well, you have to walk, etc. So maybe to be free really means to, to get something that you value and the sacrifice you make for that is so small and the value of the thing you get is so huge that, it, they can't, that the, it's not even comparable. Maybe that's what free means. And everyone goes, yeah, this seems like a good philosophical definition. You're right, this is what free means. And it leads to, to some unintuitive conclusions. That idea of free leads to unintuitive conclusions. Namely, the conclusion, perhaps, that you can charge money for a car, but because the, car, the value of the car is so good, it's, it's free. In this, this specific philosophical made-up version of free that let's just pretend someone finds convincing. Okay, now here's my point. If they were to go out into the street and they were to pull people in and say, we're selling free cars, come in here, we're giving away free cars, free cars, free cars. The person comes in, they say, hop and test drive, come on, test drive. They test drive in the car, they say, it's really free, it's really free. Driving around, they, they pick out the color, they do the paint, they write their name down and says, okay, this will be $16,000. The person goes, what? I thought you said it was free. The dealer goes, well, yeah, but your, your definition of free is, is wrong. It's just, it's, you've, it's, it's just, you haven't thought it through. That would be dishonest. It's dishonest to use a term to someone knowing that they understand it in a certain way, using that understanding to draw them in, and then once they're in, say, actually, it's not like that. That's dishonest. And so I think this is a stumbling block that, you know, I, I don't really know what there's to do as a Calvinist. I mean, maybe you say that I don't really know what you do. I guess you could try and argue that, no, I, I don't know what you could do. And the second one is sort of a general rule I use for myself, which is, is this the kind of thing that could be used to defend other really, really, really bad things, right? So here's an example. When people go to the Old Testament and God commits genocide, and I know genocide is a loaded word, so I only mean it in that he commands a group of people to wipe out a people group. He commands the Israelites to, to kill all the Canaanites and their babies and their women so they can't. That's what I mean by genocide. I don't mean anything more than that. When God commands people to do genocide, 
And th there are apologists who will say, well, this, this was a justified genocide. Uh, of course, genocide is generally wrong, but this one was justified. And so the rule I use for myself is, could this apologist turn this around and use it for something like Nazism? Could this apologist turn around and defend something like Pol Pot? Well, he's certainly a lot, a lot more able to defend it than I am. When you say that there is, a, that there is correct genocide, you are, you are disturbingly able to say that Hitler's genocide was justified. And I know that's not what they're saying, but this is just a rule I use. If this conclusion you come to is eerily close to being an apologetic for, you know, for Hitler, for example, I don't want to get involved in it. I don't want to, I don't want to be involved. And that's one of my concerns about Calvinism is that, you know, in, in order to, to make the claim that these things that God does that are intuitively wrong and evil are actually good, it just, it feels like you could make that same argument for any sort of evil, you know? Oh, well, you know, we killed all these people, but you got to realize that your intuitions about what it means to be good are, you know, they're wrong, and, and actually good means, you know what I mean? And again, this, this is, I'm not giving you a philosophical argument with premises and a conclusion, and it's not, I'm not interested in doing analytic philosophy. I'm just giving you these heuristics, these rules that I use in life, and, you know, hopefully you can relate to them. Relate to the idea of, it's like this. Do you ever have a, ever have a conversation with someone and they don't say something racist, but they say something like that you know racists also say? And it's not it's not that they're they're racist, but it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And you these are people I love do this. You know, someone will be like you're having a conversation and they'll be like, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what one example of this would be. I can't think of an example now, but maybe you relate to that. Um, I, this is a rule that I use, and I think it's I think it's valid. I think it's wise to consider how what you believe and what you think could be applied in other situations, right? So, those are the two reasons against Calvinism that I hope are, are somewhat novel and interesting. The first one, again, was it's that the way they use the word "good" is dishonest. And the second one is that it's just, it's, it's disturbing that it's, it's, in a way, it's sort of an apologetic that seemingly has, could be used to justify other terrible things.